You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Heavenly Father, let's pray that you'd speak to us this morning through your word, the seed of faith, which may be planted in us already, would be watered from your teaching as tender drops of rain, or the seed of faith may for the very first time be planted and hearts gathered here. Either way that that's a miracle, it only happens through your spirit. So we pray that you do that. Unless the Lord does raise the house, its builders build in strife, and so in vain. So Father, without you, what we're doing this morning has no value, has no eternal significance. Please come and meet us. Please do your work in us. Amen. So I'm going to do two things this morning that I typically never do. It's risky. The first is I'm going to hopefully show some connections across a couple different texts. You could be turning to Psalm 93. We're going to start there. And that's risky because it could be less clear. It could be confusing. It could be kind of hard to follow. But I thought that the connections were, were worth seeing. And so I'm going to do it anyways. And the second thing I'm doing is using a handful of slides which I don't typically do, because they're kind of bothersome usually, but I figured that I could condescend and give you some slides to help you follow along and maybe make it less confusing. So, if afterwards this was terrible, you couldn't follow anything, feel free to come up to me and tell me to never do that again. If you really, really like the slides and appreciate those, feel free to keep that to yourself. (laughs) All right, I have one goal this morning, just one goal, and we've already been singing it together and that is to behold God on his throne. Behold God on his throne. That is the theme and message of our our psalm. I hope it would be the theme and message of our sermon. And uh, I'm going to give us three throne room scenes to think about. Three throne room scenes, all right? So if you look at Psalm 93, I'm going to read it. It's only five verses. I'm going to read it slowly, and you just kind of follow along verse to verse. See if you notice anything, any patterns, any words that seems significant, pick up what it's meaning, and then we'll jump right in, okay? Psalm 93, verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. To begin, one note about the context of this psalm. If you've been reading through the psalms this summer from psalm to psalm, you may have noticed this past week that you crossed over into book four, starting in Psalm 90. You could probably just flip one page, look back at Psalm 90, you see right above that, your book probably says book four. And we've talked about in the past, when we started our psalm series, you wanna go to the next slide? I think I have a picture here. The psalms are broken up really into five books. All right, I won't get into kind of the specifics of how we clearly know that, but the first two books are really concerned with David, his life, Uh, Many of the psalms he wrote are there, though not all of them, and the rise of the the kingdom of Israel. The third book 
deals a lot with the coming terror of the Assyrians, then later the Babylonians, and the collapse of the kingdom of God in Israel and Judah. And so the psalm Justin preached last week is a great example of this, right? They're crying out, oh my gosh, we're surrounded by all these enemies. Help us, help us, help us, help us. And then book four, it seems to move the narrative forward in the life of Israel's history to the time of the exile, when the kingdom of Judah, uh, back in 732, the kingdom of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire actually, came and conquered the 10 northern tribes, took them all away. A couple hundred years later, in 586, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came, besieged Jerusalem, captured it, destroyed everything, plundered the temple, and took God's people away back to Babylon. And so many of the Psalms in book four carry this kind of theme of, oh my gosh, like Jerusalem has fallen, the temple is desolate, God's people are scattered. And that's important for understanding our psalm here today because of the very first read. It says, the Lord reigns, which would be hard to grasp, hard to believe, hard to really trust in that if you just watch your civilization which was the chosen people of God, get destroyed by enemies. Particularly in the ancient world, warfare is theological. The loser of a battle indicates that their God lost to the winner's God. And so it would be very easy for the Israelites in captivity to think, no, the Lord does not reign. He has been challenged and defeated by maybe Marduk, the king of Babylon, or these other gods of the surrounding nations. And so this is in stark contrast to what God's people are feeling, perhaps, but it's definitely what they need. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. You get this picture in your mind. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. The word Lord there in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Justin mentioned last week, is God's covenant name in Hebrew, Yahweh, that he gave to his people. It indicates his His status as the covenant Lord or King, the greater power in their covenant. And so for God's people who have broken covenant and be cast out into exile, to use his covenant name is itself significant as well. That they're still calling on the God who is faithful even when they are unfaithful. Psalm 115.3 exalts God's rule and similarly says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The theme of this song is laid out in the first verse. It's God's rule, his control. He exercises his power to accomplish his his will whenever he pleases. And so right away, you feel the tension. That God is reigning. We're maybe crying out, praising God in our captivity. But it sure doesn't seem like that. Further, it says he's robed in majesty. The Oxford Dictionary defines majesty as royal power stateliness, dignity, beauty. It's a really interesting word. It's like all of those things and more. I think it captures this idea of beauty, but also of of awe, a little bit of terror mixed in at how powerful, stately, just otherworldly this person is. It humbles you and it makes you stop and go, whoa, when you're in the presence of majesty. If you go to the next slide, I believe... It's a picture of Mount Denali. I think this is one of the greatest instances of majesty on our continent. This is the highest mountain on our continent. This is the Denali viewpoint from the highway going up to Fairbanks. I've been there with my wife. And you can see the wonderful, like beautiful, peaceful lake, and then the, the waving hills. And then there's a band of mountains 
that are bigger than the Black Hills. Like, you have no sense of scale when you're looking at this. Like, that's an enormous mountain. You just look at it, and it's, it engulfs your entire view. If you've been to Rocky Mountain National Park, uh, you've been around the West at all, these mountains are beautiful, but they actually are like nothing compared to Mount Denali. It's just, it's huge. It's beautiful. It's awe-inspiring. It's also terrifying. People try to climb Mount Denali every year and die because the mountain will beat you up and crush you. You cannot approach this mountain in any kind of casual sense. And I think that's the idea of majesty. Further, now it goes on in verse 2 to describe God on his throne. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. This additional word picture just helps to further build out this idea of majesty, of a king sitting on his throne, perhaps in armor with the crown, bejeweled with many different fine jewels, symbols of power like eagles, swords, maybe guards stationed nearby, the color purple, which was incredibly valuable. All these images we have of earthly kings are actually meant to point us to the way in which our, our own God rules and reigns. And for the, uh, for the ancient world, the God of your kingdom ruled from his throne, and that throne was your God's temple, actually. The God's throne is in heaven, but it meets earth in a unique way at the temple. If you go to the next slide, there's a picture of a ziggurat from Babylon, I think. All right, this is kind of like a CGI recreation. So this is what Israel is seeing. This is incredibly impressive. Again, it's like a mountain, like human beings building mountains to exalt and, and create a sense of awe and wonder and beauty and majesty as they worship, unfortunately, false gods. And Israel has watched their own temple be destroyed. If you go to the next slide, it's a picture of the um, Acropolis in Athens. Both the ancient Near East as well as the Greeks did this exact same thing. You find the highest place you can, build the most impressive structure as a symbol that our God reigns from that location. And so Israel's temple, if you go to the next slide, in Israel, it looks a little bit like this. This is actually a scale model that you can go see if you visit the Holy Land. It's pretty unique. They did the same thing. The highest mountains in the Jerusalem kind of highlands, ridgeline of Judea, they built this temple to God. Oftentimes, it's referred to as the mountain of God or Mount Zion. And it's designed to evoke a sense that God is uniquely dwelling with his people here in this temple. That God's enthroned here. All the imagery inside is majestic. There's pictures of terrifying creatures called cherubim that are like half human, half horse, half cobra, half lion, half ox. The fractions don't add up there. But they're designed to be like, whoa, I've entered sacred space. And this is, this is the place from which our God rules and reigns. But for Israel, this has been destroyed. This has been toppled down, burned with fire. The Ark of the Covenant's gone. All the gold vessels that would have been used in the sacrificial system have been looted and taken back to Babylon to fill in Nebuchadnezzar's treasury. And so, for an ancient Israelite, your God's throne has been destroyed. So the psalm reminds Israel that no, that's not the case. That God, his throne is established. Verse 2, it will, never be ta- it will never be shaken or moved. It's established from of old. It's from everlasting. Nothing can threaten it. Yes, your temple was destroyed. But that was just a mere footstool. 
That was, a, that was a condescension on God's part. His true throne is in the heavens. The significance here is clear for the ancient Jew in Babylon. Hopefully it's clear for us as well. We don't have any particular place on earth to look to, any temple to go to. And so we as exiles as well ought to remember that our Lord reigns from the heavens. God's kingdom extends far beyond Israel. 1 Kings 8.27 puts it this way. You might have to skip forward a few, a few slides, two or three. 1 Kings 8.27 says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven can't contain you. How much less this house that I have built? These are the words of Solomon as he's dedicating the temple to God. God, I just built this incredible structure, but I know this isn't really your throne. This could not contain your presence. Or Isaiah 66, 1 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven's my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares Yahweh. So Jerusalem may have fallen. The temple destroyed, the Ark of the Covenant taken back, lost forever. Indiana Jones is not going to find it. But God's throne is established. It can't be shaken. And so, even when there's no physical location of God's special rule and reign and power on the earth, Yahweh is still to be worshipped for his reign and majesty. And that's what creation now does in verse 3. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Floods is often the word for river. That creation itself, a babbling brook, or the mighty waters of Niagara Falls are themselves calling out and praising their creator. That Israel, surrounded by creation, even though they're in exile, can still call out and worship God, just as the rest of creation is doing. Verse 4 continues this picture, Mightier than the waters of many waters, thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Here's this word picture. Again, the God's power, his majesty is so impressive. Even though you've seen waves of Babylonian soldiers clashing against the walls of Jerusalem and bringing it down, that's nothing compared to a tsunami or a hurricane, which is nothing compared to God Almighty's power and strength. And so we praise him for his majesty and his power. Even when the might of Babylon's armies have surrounded you, your temple is destroyed, and you're in exile. And so finally, the verse 5, the psalmist turns to God himself and praising him. He says, your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. His decrees are his orders or his commands, and these things are trustworthy. The God who sits on heaven from everlasting, who rules all the affairs of men, who himself appointed, decreed the invasion of Babylon, that decree was trustworthy. God is still faithful. He's worthy of our trust, even though his decrees, his orders, commands might not be what we would want. What you declared for us, O Lord, is good. That's what the psalmist is saying. I can trust you even though I'm in exile. Even when we are faithless, God is faithful to fulfill his covenant. Second line, it says, holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Again, this is the idea of the cherubim surrounding God's throne, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is holy 
in his throne in heaven. He is unapproachable by sinful creatures. His majesty puts us both in awe and delight, but also sheer terror because we understand, as Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6, that we are unclean people and we dwell among an unclean people. So even when God's people pollute themselves with idols and evil deeds, God is still holy. And so this ends Psalm 93. It's a great theme. Its great theme is Yahweh's majesty and rule from his throne over all the earth, not just in Jerusalem. The Lord's power, might, and majesty are not threatened, even when his physical throne, the temple, is destroyed and his people are in Babylon. And just as the temple was an earthly picture of a heavenly reality, so too the events of Israel's history are a shadowy picture of events to come. And so we turn to our second throne scene. The problem with Israel is that they had broken God's covenant with them. They had disobeyed all his laws. They had prostituted their hearts by worshiping idols. By sending Israel into exile, God was showing his justice and commitment to defending his majesty, which is the only source of joy for all people. Right? Imagine Mount Denali and people just, or even just the viewing point, and people just leaving their pop cans and candy bar wrappers around. That would stain, it would detract from the beauty of the mountain. And if the mountain itself could rise up and crush those people, you'd be like, yeah, do it. Get those guys who are littering. In the same way, Israel, though they can't actually threaten God, they can't detract from his beauty, they have obscured it kind of like smoke. And the nations are not seeing God for who he really is. And so in his justice, he has punished them and sent them into exile. But God also had a plan to bring them back to the land in a future generation so that he could remain faithful to the covenant he had made with Abraham that his, his children would be numbered like the sand on the sea or the stars in the sky, that they would inhabit and inherit this land, that one day all the nations would be blessed through Abraham's seed, his children. But all the nations are just like Israel. They have all turned aside. None of them deserves God's blessing. God's blessing. If you remember Psalm 53, we preached back in June. There is none righteous, no, not one. All people, both Jew and non-Jew, deserve eternal exile in hell for their rebellion against their king because God is not just the king of the Jews but of all peoples. And so when the Jews come back from Babylon, they rebuild the temple, but they never recover the Ark of the Covenant or anything like that. They never regain their freedom as the kingdom of God except for a short time under the Maccabees. And they never have a Davidic king, a prince from the line of David who's gonna sit on the throne. They're still left wondering if God is ever going to fulfill his covenant promises to Abraham and David. The Babylonian exile was in, started in 586, so fast forward 500 years to Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus comes on the scene claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to be the Messiah. That's a Hebrew word for chosen one, the one chosen to take the throne. The Christ, the chosen one, the descendant of David, has come to reclaim the rightful rule of God's kingdom. His mission is this restore his father's honor, and reassert God's rule and dominion on the earth. Display the majesty of God from his throne. But here's the catch. All in such a way that instead of destroying God's enemies, which is everyone, he's, or sending them into exile, he actually has to open up a way for them 
to be brought back into covenant relationship with Yahweh, the God of Israel. How does he do that? John's gospel is full of this theme of the reign of God. He's going to show us our second throne room scene. The throne of God through the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus' mission that I just laid out is captured well in John chapter 12. I think if you go to the next slide, you'll see it on the screen there. Jesus is talking about his you know, pending trial in Jerusalem. Not just his, his legal trial, but the, the cross, obviously. He says, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from, from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. There's a new king in town. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When I am enthroned again, when I come into the kingdom, when this ruler is cast out, I will draw all people to myself. God's mission will be complete. His rule, his reign, his majesty, his throne will be secure for all to see. Glorify the Father's name, reclaim his honor, show who he really is, be lifted up, reclaim the throne, publicly demonstrate his kingship to the world, and draw all men to himself, reclaim the nations, unite new humanity under his reign. And so we get to Jesus' enthronement in the Gospel of John. I'm going to be working through John 19 here a little bit. You can see it on the screen or you can turn to it in your own Bibles if you like. First, Jesus is delivered up to Pilate in 19, sorry, excuse me, 1833 to 40. Look at all this kingship language. Look at all this language of kingship here. John 18:33. Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? It's about kingship. Jesus' crucifixion is all about kingship in John's gospel. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. He's not getting a straight answer. Jesus says, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to me. Then Pilate scoffs, what is truth? Then he goes to the Jews and says, do you want me to release your king? And they're like, no, give us Barabbas. And so in John 19, verse 1, Pilate took Jesus, flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. He's now crowned king. And they put on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe, symbol of royalty. And they came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, imagine the scene, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And to the audience, what a despicable embarrassment. But to you and I, the reader, the irony is thick. He really is the king. Yes. And Silas Pilate said, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And so you fast forward to chapter 19, verse 12. 
From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar's. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Why was Jesus crucified? He claimed to be king. And the Jews and the Romans didn't like this. This is what gets Pilate to crucify him. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? Like Pilate's bought in at this point. The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over, him over to be crucified. And now get this final picture. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is an Aramaic called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. Sorry, skip. So the, he wrote that inscription in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priest said, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I've written, I have written. And so Jesus' enthronement on the cross for John is his throne. That is the place where Jesus becomes king, is on a Roman cross, wearing a crown of thorns and robed in a purple robe. No majesty or beauty that we could think of, scarred, cut open, bleeding from the 40 lashes he received. To the onlookers, Jesus is being publicly crushed, cut down to size, embarrassed. The cross is proofing for everyone. He's no king. What a fool. Right, but to us, the reader, that's my king. He really is the king. It is precisely on the cross that Jesus' kingship is revealed. This is how a real king reigns, from his throne. He's taking responsibility for his people's sins, and he's defeating his people's greatest enemy, death, on the cross. That's what a real king does. And he's not helpless. He marched into Jerusalem the previous Sunday, knowing exactly what he was doing. It was his very claim to be king that got him crucified by the Jews and the Romans. In another gospel, Matthew 26, 53, as he's being arrested, he says, do you think that I can't appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? I could call on my army at any time and crush you guys. Matthew also records that while Jesus is on the cross, the Jews mock him, saying, if you really are the son of God, if you really are the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. Again, if you're so high and mighty, save yourself. And the reader is screaming, no, he has to stay there until it is fulfilled, until it is finished. He's my king. He's got to win the battle. Jesus, don't come down. Don't come down until you've saved me. Pastor Brandon Levering writes, it is through the cross that Jesus, is accomplish Jesus accomplishes the work he came to do in bringing God's rule and reign to bear on this fallen earth. It's through the cross that he is inaugurating God's heavenly kingdom, beginning God's new creation. Kingship and cross are not at odds. They are intimately and inextricably held together. So that's our second throne room scene. And as exiles, that is a throne we can look to time and time again. 
for strength when we feel like God may be not near, we can remember that he actually took on human form to be as near to us as possible. And that he then ascended to the Father and sent his spirit to dwell inside of us, even though we be in exile. And for those of us who know the story, we know our king didn't stay dead. He descended into the underworld to proclaim his victory and kingship to the spirits in prison, to lead his people out of exile, back into the presence of God. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And 40 days later, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. So what is he sitting on? Heaven's throne. We come back to Psalm 93. And this is the picture, the final throne room scene I want to give you today. We've gone from Psalm 93 to the Roman cross. We're going back to the heavenly throne now. So as we, exiles, just like the Jews who went to Babylon, as we look to our king, as we worship our king on the throne, what is the picture we ought to have? I'm just going to end with this. You can close your eyes if you want to or read along with me. I'm going to read Revelation 4 and 5, some chunks of it. It won't be on the slides. And I want you to think about this question, right? What does Jesus look like now as the risen Lord? He has come off the cross. He's buried in a tomb. And three days later, he rose again. And now he sits enthroned with his father. What does he look like now? If you could roll back the clouds and see Jesus reigning from God's throne, what would you, what would the author of Psalm 93 see? What does Christ look like, robed in majesty and belted with strength in heaven's room? I'm just going to read this. And then we're actually just going to roll right into singing it in our final song. This is Revelation 4. Again, you can follow along. You can close your eyes. You just meditate on these word pictures. John's using very descriptive language here to give you a picture in your mind of the throne room of heaven. I'm starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, it, was like a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne on each side, on the throne, are four living creatures, cherubim, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Skipping to chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. 
And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God and for every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and in all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What John sees in the throne room of heaven is not a mighty warrior prepared to take vengeance on his enemies, but a lamb slain to ransom people from every tribe and tongue with his own blood. That's what true kingship looks like. That is how our Messiah reigns, even now from heaven, as he intercedes for us. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lamb of God and Holy Spirit, you are worthy. You are worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And so to you be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Help us to sing that with true hearts now. Help us to see that vision of your throne on Calvary or in the heavenly places and to know with surety that even as exiles on the earth, even though we may be surrounded by enemies, you are in control. Your plan for your son to ascend your throne through crucifixion was laid before the foundation of the world and your plan to see us home seated before that throne for eternity will not fail. Amen. Please stand and sing with us. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.